TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in Memphis. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. 901 Shelby Drive, look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. Welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. So first of all, a very happy new year to you all. I know it's a little late for happy new years, but this is our first episode of 2019. I do apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. I've been busy. Producer Gil's been busy. He's just coming back from Disney World, but we've been having fun. Sorry to keep y'all waiting. But I promise that one of my New Year's resolutions this year is to ensure that I put a few more episodes in your feed. So hold me to it. With that being said, I'm pretty excited about today's episode, which we will will be covering the immense legacy of the newborn family. Specifically, father Phineas Newborn Sr. and his two sons, Phineas Jr. and Calvin. And I should say for the purest out there that Phineas Newborn Sr. did go by Finus, spelled F-I-N. NAS, although his proper name is Phineas. Anyway, I wouldn't be surprised at all if none of these names are familiar to you, but uh, hopefully over the next 30 minutes or so, I can illustrate just how impactful their careers really were on the development of Memphis music and really within the jazz world more generally. So, uh, wasn't sure where to begin our story because it's a sprawling one, but We're going to start in the mid-1940s, which puts both Calvin and Phineas Jr. as young teens. At this time, like I said, 1945 and 1946, they were playing with their father's popular band at the infamous club, The Plantation Inn. If you don't remember The Plantation Inn, we talked about it earlier this season. West Memphis Club, known for its rowdiness and for its great wild performances. Um, Go back and check that out give you a little context. Anyway, Phineas Jr., who was a couple years older than Calvin, was already a fairly celebrated piano player in the city by this time. Once again, they were still both in high school, and Calvin himself was quickly making his name as a guitar virtuoso. So anyway, along with his sons, drummer Phineas Sr.'s band also included a really veritable who's who of Memphis musicians. So in a recent interview, producer and musician Scott Bomar said, quote, Look at all the people that came through that band. William Bell, George Coleman, Honeymoon Gardner, Fred Ford, Charles Lloyd, Booker Little. That whole newborn family band was a cornerstone of Memphis music. It's a chapter that I don't think has gotten its due. End quote. And I certainly agree. And as if that list weren't impressive enough, you forgot to mention the likes of people like Ben Branch and Willie Mitchell, who really also spent a 
good amount of their early career playing in the Phineas Newborn Family Show Band, as its proper name was. So one of the musicians that Bomar did name was saxophonist Fred Ford, and uh, I want to play a little clip of him remembering the first time that he saw a young Phineas Newborn Jr. in person. Let's take a listen. When I first met Phineas, I heard about him, but I didn't, I didn't know him. I was around 15, so Phineas was 13. They sat a Coca-Cola case on the piano stool. Phineas came up and sat on the Coca-Cola case, played the piano. And what I heard, it shocked me. And I told Phineas about it later on in life, you know, uh, back in the 70s. I said, you know what, Phineas? He said, what? I said, when I saw you playing on that piano, I said, I knew that you were playing. I said, but I didn't think you were a little boy. I thought you were a midget. They passed you on as a kid. So Fred Ford was not the only person who was struck by the genius of the young newborn boys. Uh, As Calvin Newborn explained years later, uh, a young white kid started showing up at some of their early shows and seemed particularly enthralled with him. And his unique moves. I, I got to give you a little preface. Calvin was known not only for his prowess as a guitarist, but really he was really early on playing the guitar behind his head, playing it behind his back, sliding, just the consummate showman. So anyway, here's his quote. Quote, I would see him everywhere. He used to come over to the Plantation Inn Club when we were over there. He used to be there and show up every Wednesday and Friday night to come see me do Calvin's Boogie and Junior's Drive. I'd be flying and sliding across the dance floor, and I think that's when he started flying too. End quote. As you may have guessed, I'm guessing you did, that young white kid who was at the show was none other than Elvis Presley, who just, uh, would you agree, Gil? He just shows up in our program often in these kind of little anecdotes, which I, it's fun. Anyway, uh, Calvin continued on, quote, Elvis that got the swiveling hips and the wiggling, wiggling his legs from me. So I realized that that's a potentially explosive assertion that, uh, you know, may seem dubious. But more I read, I think it probably seems unlikely that Elvis himself would dispute this claim. So over the years, Presley really uh, always gave Calvin his due. Never quite said that he got the wiggling and the swiveling hips from him, but did give him his due as an early influence, even though they were of similar ages. And he also really formed a strong bond with the entire newborn newborn family. Often was at family dinners at their homes, etc. But uh, genuinely close with the family. So after watching Calvin from this period of time, the parallels are also pretty hard to deny. If you can watch videos of a young Calvin newborn and then videos a couple years later of Elvis Hard to deny. Anyway, for his part, Calvin claimed that he was never bitter about the fame and fortune that greeted Elvis, but that eluded himself, saying, quote, Everybody thinks I should be mad, but I love the cat. He was a beautiful dude. So for a little bit more information about that Presley Newborn connection, I want to take a quick listen to an interview with Calvin Newborn from 2012. I went on the road uh, my first year in high school. When they found out that Elvis used to come see me on Wednesdays and Thursday nights do my act, uh, as quiet as it's kept, uh, 
Elvis got wiggling his legs and swiveling his hips from me. <laughs> That's how he learned how to act like he could play the guitar. He, he could play a few chords, but but he got his style from me. We used to have Battles of the Blues every night at uh, the Flamingo Room, a black club. My dad invited Elvis up there, and uh, so he came, and uh, he was the only white person in the club, but my dad told me to let him play my guitar on the show, and uh, that's when uh, Memphis's rock and roll revolution started right there. So as impressive that story is, Elvis wasn't the only legend who was deeply influenced by the newborns during these early years. Um, in fact, I, I probably talked about it, I think, on that episode, about the partly about the Plantation Inn, that many of the artists from Stax Records' heyday really credit the Phineas Newborn band with helping to define the sound that they would, you know, eventually call the Stax sound. Um which some, you know, a small horn section, these really kind of driving, stomping grooves, the call and response shouts, apparently a lot of, not just the white kids, but most especially the white kids, your Duck Dunn, Steve Croppers of the MGs, your Packy Axtons, they picked a lot of their early cues about what Memphis black music was, was from this newborn family. So to quote Scott, Bo- excuse me, Scott Bomar once again, quote, I think the family are the missing link between Sun Records and Stax, which once again, hearing them makes a lot of sense. So having already made their unintentional mark on future rock and roll and soul music greats, the band was really also important to the Memphis blue scene. So legend has it. I read this in a few articles. It seems a bit dubious but but I'd, I'd rather believe it than not was that a young calvin newborn really helped to teach howlin wolf how to play play guitar as well as ike turner uh if nothing else teaching them some different chords and stuff when he was 16 17 but like i said that may be a little bit harder to, to prove one thing that we do know for sure is that the family band was tapped by a young blues musician named bb king to back him on his debut album back in 1949. Uh, And they also joined him a little later on on his earlier recordings with Sun Records. So anyway, not a bad look to cut, you know, with B.B. King on his very first album. And before we move on, I want to listen to one of those early B.B. tracks that featured the newborns called Miss Martha King. So you're going to hear Phineas Sr. on drums, Phineas Jr. on piano, and Calvin on guitar. I ain't afraid. 
right. So before the two brothers flew the nest in order to pursue their own professional and artistic ambitions, they did have one last major mark to leave as a family band. So uh, the trio of Phineas Sr., Phineas Jr., and Calvin actually were once again tapped by Jackie Brinston and the Delta Cats to be their touring band in support of their hit song Rocket 88, which many of you may recognize as what is largely considered to be the very first rock and roll song. So I just want to take a moment to reiterate real quick that before their 21st birthdays, Phineas Newborn Jr. and Calvin Newborn had deeply influenced Elvis Presley. They had performed in the debut album by B.B. King. They had laid the foundation for the stack sound. Uh, they had potentially taught Howlin' Wolf and Ike Turner how to better play the guitar. And they went on the first rock and roll tour. Not too shabby. And the scary thing is, in a lot of ways, they were only getting started. So at this point in our story, I think it would be a little bit easier if we could kind of split our stories into two, uh, beginning with the journey of pianist Phineas Newborn. There's a lot of parallels. Calvin will make his appearances, but I promise we'll catch up with them more thoroughly later. Anyway, here's the story of Phineas Newborn Jr. He began... Post-family band, became a session musician with Sun Records. Uh, he then went on to enroll in college in Nashville, where he really began his proper studying of music. I think he had come up like most musicians in his area, especially if we're being honest, black musicians were not a lot of formal schooling, more things being passed down. But he did end up in college in Nashville and really got into bolstering his classic music repertoire. And... uh Apparently, from all reports, just really worked tirelessly to develop his own unique techniques. And at the end of it, after college, he really did come out with his own sound uh, and was this kind of rare anomaly in the blue scene. He was the rare orchestral two-handed player. He, unlike most jazz musicians, all of whom used two hands, but used both to just stroke the keys and was often extremely fast and like I said, once again, just a real anomaly in the scene. So his music critic, Scott Yanow, wrote, quote, His bot-based style was largely unclassifiable. His technique was phenomenal, and he was very, very capable of enthralling an audience playing a full song with just his left hand. So yeah, truly ambidextrous in the way that where most musicians could kind of keep the backbeat with the left and play with the right, he was doing it on both. Anyway, by the early 1950s, Phineas returned home from college for a brief period of time before spending a little bit of time, good amount of time actually, uh, performing with Lionel Hampton's legendary band. Anyway, a few years later, at the urging of jazz great Count Basie, who had come to Memphis and saw, seen the two brothers perform, both Phineas and Calvin decided to move to New York City in the mid-1950s and as they've both said in interviews, they were really gunning for the, you know, the jazz Mount Everest. They were looking for the, their spot among the jazz greats. And also, as they both noted, was to part of their motivation was to escape that rampant race, racism of the South at the time. So as Calvin recalled later to author Robert Gordon, quote, 
I think that's the main reason why I left Memphis, you know, just to play jazz. Because jazz seemed to have put it on an even keel, because a lot of white people respected jazz. And that was the bebop era, you know, and I admired Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday and all those jazz artists. And that's one reason I was so glad to get away from Memphis. End quote. So once in the Big Apple, the brothers began playing in a quartet. Phineas was the band leader, and they played alongside future jazz greats like Oscar Pettiford and Kenny Clark. And in 1956, the quartet released Phineas's debut album called Here is Phineas, which made instantaneous waves in the jazz world almost immediately. So in a review, the critic Scott Yano, who I quoted earlier, wrote, quote, Some listeners may shake their heads at his constant outpouring of technically impossible runs. Those speedy octaves are ridiculous. But if one has chops on this level, one should feel free to display them. This is a dazzling debut. So for an example of that dazzling debut and of Phineas's stunning piano skills, let's take a listen to a song off of that album called Newport Blues. So after the release of that debut, Phineas continued to lead other trios and quartets. Um, here's where I, here's where I come honest. Every article I read would just have massive names of artists. I'm a jazz fan by no means anywhere near a, uh, a jazz connoisseur, but so it's probably worth going back to read that list just because I'm sure so many of these names are huge. I, they're just unfamiliar to me. But one that kept coming up and that I did recognize was Charles Mingus. He famously recorded with that bassist and also drummer Roy Haynes. They were apparently a a tight little trio. Anyway, by the latter part of that decade, Phineas was starting to be uh, placed by critics alongside some of the greatest jazz pianists of all time. He earned comparisons to the likes of Art Tatum and Oscar Peterson. And actually read an article with Art Tatum saying that if he had to name the greatest jazz pianist to come after him that Phineas got his vote. So anyway, this popularity and national acclaim really allowed him to become a national star as far as jazz will take you. And he played throughout Rome. He uh, actually got solo stints in Stockholm and Rome, which was a big deal at the time. So really a, a jazz superstar during this era. So in the early 1960s, Phineas left New York City to move to Los Angeles. He was going to go record for the Contemporary label and came out with several albums on that label. But critics began dismissing him fairly or or unfairly that his music had become a little bit more concerned with his flashy technical displays and 
less concerned with the emotionality behind it. Um, so a lot of people say that this kind of criticism and rejection helped to cause his, uh, his decline. You know, that's once again, a hard thing to say, but either way, once these bad reviews started coming in, we really saw a, a sharp decline in Phineas Newborn's mental and emotional health. Anyway, uh, to kind of add to that, I think a bit was in 1965, a few years after being in LA, Phineas Sr., his father, traveled to, uh, to LA to visit and perform with his son. He was in, not in the best of health. His doctors warned him against it, but he wanted to go visit. And they actually, the two played in a concert together. Unfortunately, as Phineas Sr. walked off the stage, he died immediately, apparently. That was his, something romantic about that, something kind of sweet about that. But yeah, with Phineas Jr.'s mental health being where it was, probably not a great thing. So as you may imagine, his health continu- his mental health continued to decline, and he was actually eventually placed in the Camarillo State Mental Hospital for a, a, you know, relatively lengthy amount of time. Anyway, before we get too deep into that part of the story, let's check back in with our brother Calvin, who was still in New York City and sadly dealing with his own demons at the time. So in the mid-60s, Calvin had just lost his wife to a heroin overdose. And he says, in an interview I read, I found this sadly interesting that his wife had died of this drug he had never tried and he became curious about it and tried it himself before too long. Calvin also had a drug abuse problem with heroin and other things. But despite this, uh, he managed to continue to build his already sterling reputation. He played by, uh, besides musical giants like Booker Little, Count Basie, Ray Charles and Son Ra and was really uh, one of the most sought after sidemen in New York City, at least in the jazz scene. So despite pretty much achieving his goal of reaching jazz's mountaintop, Calvin's drug use was really starting to become more and more of an issue. Quote, someone always gave me a gig even though they had to get my guitar out of a pawn shop, he recalled. Pretty soon I had a $100 a day habit. All of the 60s, I call it 10 years of torture. So by 1970, both Phineas Jr. and Calvin had both made their way back home to Memphis, and each, unfortunately, was a bit worse for the wear. So at this time, Phineas was back home being cared for by their mother at home, while Calvin worked on reestablishing himself in their hometown. So Calvin helped to tend for his older brother, helped his mom out, and also began playing with an old high school friend named Herman Green, in a quartet called the Green Machine, which, how about this? Our own journalist Alex Green called some of the finest jazz Memphis has ever produced. So in 1974, Phineas Jr. was still very much battling with his mental health, but he was preparing for a comeback. Unfortunately, right when he was getting ready for this comeback, he was brutally attacked randomly which resulted in several broken fingers, a fractured cheekbone, and other damage. So it'd be pretty easy to understand if he had taken this as kind of a cruel sign to just to continue on with his hiatus from music. But instead, 
On the night he was released from the hospital, he entered Ardent Studios and began working on his comeback album called Solo Piano. Upon that album's release, it was largely held as a return to form for The Forgotten Master and actually even got nominated for a Grammy Award. So it seemed at the time, if only for a brief moment, that Phineas may be able to return to his glory days. As we'll see, unfortunately, that was not to be. But before we move on, I do want to take to a, take a listen to a track from that comeback album called Nika's Dream. Following the release of Solo Piano, Phineas Newborn Jr. actually returned to New York City for the first time in over a decade for a run of concerts at the iconic Village Gate Jazz Club. Uh, Thankfully, all of these concerts were highly celebrated by both audiences and critics alike. So writing in the New York Times, Robert Palmer held Mr. Newborn as, quote, one of the most brilliant jazz pianists. Instead of his 1978 performance, quote, he is one of those musicians who speak most eloquently through their music. And at this encounter, he spoke eloquently indeed, rippling through absolutely stunning versions of standards and jazz originals, end quote. Like I said at the top, though, despite his best efforts, Phineas was never able to recapture his golden era of the 1950s and early 60s. Um, and despite releasing a few more albums, he died poor and in relative obscurity in 1989. So although pretty tragic, Phineas's untimely death did have one silver lining, which was it spurred the creation of the Jazz Foundation of America, which is a group dedicated to helping older jazz musicians like himself with their medical bills, finances, and other needs. So thankfully, uh, a group of people realized the tragedy that was his death and and put this group together that's been doing great work for for decades now. Anyway, while Phineas was attempting to come, you know, make his comeback, um, and then also following his death, his younger brother Kelvin was also working on his own self-improvement. He sobered up during this time and really became a mentor to some of the city's younger musicians. He also joined the funk rock group Free World, who I'm sure a lot of you know if you're from Memphis. Played with them for a few years and also began releasing some of his first uh, albums of solo material beginning in the 1990s. Uh, and that string of solo releases included his much celebrated 2005 release, Newborn. Two words. So today I want to listen to a track off of Newborn called 
Newborn Blues, which was a composition that he and his brother Phineas had put together years earlier. Here's Calvin Newborn with Newborn Blues. So I'm sad to announce that just last month, I think December 3rd, if I'm not mistaken, Calvin Newborn passed away suddenly at the age of 85, which really brought an end to the incredible newborn family chapter of Memphis music. Despite their relative obscurity, I think that most music scholars would agree that Memphis's golden age of music probably wouldn't have been possible would not have happened or it at the very least would have looked radically different without the influence of Phineas Jr. and Calvin. Anyway, and that'll pretty much end our story, but as always, there's a whole lot about this incredible family that I did not get to cover today. And if you'd want to learn a bit more, I'd point you in the direction of Alex's Green's Alex Green's recent article in the Memphis Flyer called Seventh Heaven. It's the name of that article. Pretty great synopsis of Calvin and his family. Alrighty. With that being said, before we wrap things up, I do want to take a quick little trip over to the crate where we go from time to time to sift through some of the most notable albums in Memphis music history. So that strange little number is a track called Layout from an album called Emergency by the group, wait for it, Memphis Firefighters Band. That album was released, the best I can tell you, was sometime in the mid-1970s. So unfortunately, yet probably unsurprisingly, I wasn't able to find out much information about this bizarre little piece of Memphis music history. But I just found it too charming and strange to not include, so we'll go over what little info I was able to gather. 
So as you probably inferred, the Memphis Firefighters Band was indeed composed entirely of Memphis firemen, and actually nine of the ten songs on this album are all original compositions. And once again, as you may imagine, they all deal with the issues facing firefighters. So, other songs on the album, which was released by Solomon Records, include Backdraft, The Mad Fireman, and my personal favorite, City Budget Blues. <laughs> uh, and the music itself is a, not only pretty good, but a pretty eclectic mix of Kind of country, a little bit of southern rock, a little power pop, and then uh, a healthy dose of Memphis horns on the side. All of these have that. I do not actually think it's the Memphis horns, but certainly a couple firemen who uh, are channeling them. Anyway, the album Emergency, which I'm sad to report is the group's only release, was actually produced by a pretty legendary guy. So producer Stan Kessler of Sun Records. If you're a Sun Records fan, I'm sure you know that name. Uh, He actually worked with the Firemen and, you know, I mean, some of the talent he had helped bring. Jay Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins. He played on Great Balls of Fire. So Sam Kessler was a very well-known quantity. Once again, I have so many questions, but ended up producing this album by the uh, Memphis Firemen. Anyway, according to the album's liner notes, the Memphis Firefighters also wrote original songs for the likes of Sam the Sham, the Gentries, Bobby Wood, several other names. Uh, So I have no way of backing this claim up, but as I said earlier, I'm definitely choosing to claim it as truth. So not only were they fighting fires, but writing great tracks for some pretty well-known Memphis artists. Anyway... In those two minutes, I pretty much covered everything I could track down about this band and this album. So apologies. If you know anything else, please let me know because I am just so intrigued. But it is available on iTunes and Spotify, which means that somebody knows something. Somebody cares enough to put them on there. So not only do I encourage you to check that out, but I really do. If you find anything out about this album, please let me know. So with that being said, I do want to end off this quick little segment with the title track off of that album, which, listen to the lyrical content, it really begins as this kind of lighthearted, fun little ditty, and then just takes a real unexpectedly dark turn. Anyway, this is the Memphis Firefighters Band with their track, Emergency. There's a little girl crying cause her dad's up a tree, oh, emergency. Locked in the bathroom, there ain't no key. Oh, emergency. So jump in, you turn out, slide the pole. Turn on the siren, let the engine roll. There's a man in the gutter, stabbed with a knife. Save his life Oh, emergency So jump in You turn out Slide the pole Turn on the siren Let the unit roll (laughs) Alrighty, well that will bring us To the end of this week's show As always, I'd like to thank The good folks at Arts Memphis And the Genium Foundation For their support 
If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Memphis Musicology on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you would be so kind, be sure to leave us a review. So now, our last step. Let's jump on that monorail and head over to Mud Island to add yet another song to our ever-growing playlist. Alrighty, so today on the Mud Island Mixtape, I want to play a track from another one of the Memphis's under-emphasized jazz scene and one of the many musicians who were impacted by the newborn family, as, as most jazz musicians of that era were. So I'm talking about saxophonist Jazz Lloyd, who is undoubtedly one of the biggest jazz artists to ever emerge out of Memphis, and found a recent, recent interview with him where he was sure to give credit to the newborns with helping him jumpstart his early career. Quote, I was blessed that Phineas Newborn Jr. discovered me early and took me to the great urban reason for alto lessons. Phineas also put me in his father's band. Together with Junior and his brother, Calvin, we played at the Plantation Inn, which was in West Memphis. Phineas became an important mentor and planted the piano seed in me. To this day, he still informs me. So over his lengthy career, Charles Lloyd has really reached the heights of jazz music. Um, he was the music director for Chico Hamilton's group. He was named Jazz Artist of the Year. He spearheaded, in a lot of ways, the introduction of world music onto the American scene, on and on. So, really, a, a truly impressive character. Anyway, I'll save the rest of Mr. Lloyd's biography for a future episode. But before we listen to his song, Forest Flower, which was recorded from a live performance from the Monterey Jazz Festival back in 1966, do want to encourage you to, to check some of his stuff out. Just really kind of free-spirited, cool dude. Anyway, once again, a happy New Year's to you all. I'll catch you next time. This is Charles Lloyd with Forest Flower.
The preceding is an Elm production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.